This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. In 2020, companies worldwide spent about $7.5 billion on diversity, equity, and inclusion-related efforts, and it's grown every year since, with some projections that it will double to $15.4 billion by 2026. And yet, many companies' progress has been slow or non-existent. And now, with news of layoffs across industries, especially at tech companies, there are signs that we may be poised to backslide. At Twitter, for example, the DEI team has been reportedly cut from about 30 to just two. And there's evidence that cuts at many companies have also quietly trimmed the roles responsible for diversity, equity, and inclusion. The murder of George Floyd in 2020 sparked a surge in DEI job postings, about a 123% increase that summer alone. But now, listings for DEI roles are down about 19% compared to last year. And for those who remain in the roles, an environment of frugality and disinvestment will only make a difficult job worse. As it is, chief diversity officers have among the shortest tenures of any C-suite roles. So what's the future of diversity efforts at companies, and why do they so often fail? And where does DEI go from here? I do have some optimism, though, in that, because I do think with the social climate that we're in and the continuous change that we have to look at our world with a new norm, with the healthcare pandemic, with the racial justice issues, you know, with immigration and and refugee issues with the war in Ukraine, organizations are looking at a much more integrated approach through an ESG model, environmental, social, and governance model. That's Wima Hoover. She's a global diversity, equity, and inclusion expert and has held roles leading DEI at companies including Google and Pfizer. I talked to her about the future of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and I started by asking why, despite $8 billion in investment in DEI trainings over the last few years, we aren't seeing sustainable change. I think the major reason that you're not seeing impact in organizations is because they're doing the trainings as just a compliance exercise. They literally want to have in their annual reports and their quarterly employee engagement updates, that training was administered. But what they don't do is outline what are the outcomes they're expecting to achieve with their training, how it's connected to the organization's values, how it sets expectations for leaders to set the conditions in the environment and through the culture for employees to be able to be successful, to be able to have opportunities to grow and develop and thrive regardless of their difference. And I think in absence of doing that, it becomes a rote exercise and people actually see it as that. So there's no accountability on a change behavior coming from participating and taking the training. Is the problem mostly that, like kind of the outlook of the company, it's a box to check that sort of like mindset going in? Or is there, obviously there's a million different types of diversity training, right? Like they're not all the same. Is there something that companies should look for and like what makes a good training? What makes a a not so useful training? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it has to be embedded into what the organization outcomes are looking for. So from in the practitioner perspective, it has to be a result of what culture you're trying to create. So if you do diversity training just to say, this is altruistic, this feels good, we want to have 
a metric met, you're not going to see the impact. But if you have it really integrated into this is the culture, these are the behaviors, these are expectations, this is the a workplace environment that we're creating and that we want to dem- demonstrate, we want to show evidence of, and we want to set the expectations, there is where you will see impactful and sustainable results. Tell me what you think about this, because it, it feels like it's not something, you know, as you said, like a one and done, like you check the box, we did it. For successful training to make an impactful change, is it something that companies need to kind of keep coming back to, check in regularly on? Like, how can they, you know, because you, even if it's like a good training, if you do it once, isn't it easy to kind of like, oh, yes, I, you know, that made me really think now I'm going to set it aside and forget about it probably. Yes, it is. However, if you actually train on something that now is going to be implemented and it's going to be actually set in your organization practices and processes, then you're, you're, the, the training shift from a compliance exercise to actually capability building, to actually building muscle, to actually showing what does good look like and how are we going to teach you to really drive these behaviors, set these conditions, and, and really shape the team environment, the collaboration, the respect, the equity, and the inclusion involvement of everyone in very thoughtful ways. Yeah. And it, it does sound like something that managers and employees need to think about on a regular basis, too, and like integrate into the way that they work and the way that they think. Absolutely. Because then it shifts from, from being just a training, right, to actually being a reinforcement of the culture. Because really, culture is really what is going to be the linchpin to making sure that what those outcomes that you're looking for in a diversity training actually is embedded into the day-to-day operations and ways of working. If you don't have it deeply connected and also demonstrated on a regular basis through your recognition you know, processes, through the way that you look and seek talent, through how you reward then it almost becomes a, um, you, you're, you're really sending the signals out that we want you to do this for now. We're looking at metrics. We're looking at, you know, performance learning, but we're really not expecting a change. Yeah, that's a good point. So with all of the, the layoffs that we've been seeing at tech companies, have you seen kind of cuts in DE&I roles or scaling back of DE&I commitments? And what is the, the impact that this is going to have on kind of retention of the current employees and kind of future recruitment? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, you have seen um, a lot of the reports have come out that now with organizations really right-sizing and doing massive cuts and industries where you, we haven't traditionally seen the reduction in forces at the magnitude we're seeing today, that is the first place that they're looking at, you know, cutting, looking at that diversity role, but shifting it to more an organizational role or having it adjacent to other talent roles like chief talent officer or a talent acquisition lead or HR, CHRO. And what the impact of that we're going to see is that then those efforts and those objectives and ambitions are then going to really shift back to what we saw before, which are like temporary agendas, right, that are initiative-based. And that is the worst thing that can happen because when they're initiative-based, again, they have an expiration date on it and it becomes more of setting this goal, meeting this target, and that's where the efforts lie. I do have some optimism, though, in that, because I do think with the social climate that we're in and the continuous change that we have to look at our world with a new norm, with the healthcare pandemic, with the racial justice issues, you know, with immigration and and refugee issues, with the war in Ukraine, 
organizations are looking at a much more integrated approach through an ESG model, environmental, social, and governance model. So although that particular one role in terms of chief diversity officer may be slightly declining, I do see more of an effort and more of an engagement around how are we creating a framework that really speaks to the organization's commitments, their actions, and their values from an environmental, social, and governance so that it is holistic and it can actually be thought of as a framework that will help guide a proactive approach instead of being reactive and having training, doing temporary ambition statements, you know, doing these window dressing, if you will, but having much something more longstanding and sustainable. So you see that companies may be scaling back their DE&I roles, but shifting it to more ESG roles? Shifting it to an ESG approach where you're looking at it collectively and basically really looking at the company's responsibility for really enhancing the communities you're operating. And that's what you want to do, right? Enhance it from a workforce development, enhance it from a systemic equality, and enhance it from a community engagement. And so this is really encompasses what the world we have been in in the last you know, two to three years. All of those elements are what corporate organizations have had to respond to. And now doing this in a much more thoughtful way and integrated way can, again, help organizations really have a frame that actually they can determine upfront, what is our values? What is our position in terms of the actions we're going to do in the community? How do we show up and making sure that we have the credibility and integrity on our ambitions when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion for communities, racial justice, LGBTQ, people with disabilities? That can be something that is honed, identified, and then thereby carried out through the actions, regardless of the temperature or climate that we are in. That sounds like a a best case scenario, right? A way to kind of shift the thinking to make it more sustainable and more long-term. You know, we've we've covered the, the business case for a diverse workforce exhaustively. And I hope like by now we can kind of move beyond making the case of like why a d- diverse and inclusive workforce is good for business. But let's talk a little bit about what's at stake for companies who who are looking at right-sizing or downsizing or making cuts and they're looking or thinking about scaling back their DE&I work or their DE&I positions as like not as quote unquote like necessary for the business. What's at, what's at stake for for companies thinking about things like that? I believe all of the companies and organizations are looking at what's at stake is really not having a dedicated, really focused effort on really driving longstanding impact and change. And it's what's also at stake is the accountability. Because if you don't have a metric, an expectation that is not only set, but is actually embedded into, again, the ways of working, then it's going to automatically take on this effort of being temporary or initiative-based. And that is will never drive the change that's needed. And we have seen that, right? We have seen that when there's these, you know, 2023 or 2025 goals for, you know, gender representation, which is great, which I think is so important in the first step. However, I, you know, will declare that in addition to doing those lofty goals and having those, you know, um, multi-year goals, also have sub-goals that talks about permanent changes to the systems that you're making that will then be put in place in perpetuity. Like, how are you assessing the leadership? Are you challenging your prototypes and profiles of leadership? 
Are you ensuring that you're looking for complementary skills that are surfacing across gender, across racial background, across ethnic background, across LGBT status and communities? Are you mirroring your workplace? And so those things that I think should be done in tandem with those, those goals, really the systemic changes that will kind of live on beyond those kind of target moments in time. I want to talk about the leadership aspect of it in a second, but I think like another thing to kind of underscore that's at stake, like the the kind of biggest, most pressing is retention of your current employees, right? So we absolutely. I was reading that nearly one in five female leaders have left a job because of the company's lack of commitment to DEI. That like around thirty nine percent of people decided not to pursue accepting a job offer because of perceived lack of inclusion at a company. I know this is something that like Gen Z especially has said is very important to them at at companies. So I think, you know, there's that piece of the employees attracting new employees, but then there's also retaining the employees you have. And I think it goes beyond, right, just the quote unquote diverse hires. It's something that's important, increasingly important to everybody, right? Absolutely. And that is really a result of not only having these commitments and really having that role, but really showing what does it look like in practice? How are we allowing the platform, we are empowering the employees to be able to help shape those conditions? Because I think, you know, what we have seen is a shift from the organizations kind of coming down from high and saying, you know, we are diverse, we believe in diversity and we promote this style and we're doing this campaign to now you know, hearing from their employees and their communities and women and people of color and people with disabilities and saying, what is the experience that you're looking for? And that engagement of employees, they not only um, want it, they expect it now. They expect it because, you know, what we have seen over the past few, few, few years is that there is no norm. <laughs> so we have to expect the unexpected. And will they have a platform to shape the environment and their workplaces in ways that will help them be productive, be engaged? involved and included. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, and we cover so much how, you know, employers are trying to figure out how to attract Gen Z workers, how to be appealing. You know, we're still in a tight labor market, despite all of the headlines about layoffs and a recession, we're still in a tight labor market and trying to attract and retain people over and over again. DE&I has been shown to be a priority for a lot of workers. Yes, yes. And, and, I, and I do think that it is one right now where the ability to really have that um, credibility with your employees is so, so very key and critical. I mean, you think about what happened with Disney last year under the previous CEO leadership when there was legislation in Florida on the don't say gay. And the leadership at Disney at that time felt that they didn't want to have any part, didn't want to make be vocal against that, where the employees was like, hey, this is counter to our values. This is counter to our mission and what we espouse to be and went on strike for three days. And the organization, you know, the company suffered huge losses. And so that is becoming so ever increasingly important to making sure that whatever you espouse and you declare externally, it has to be felt first internally by your employees. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing more examples of that, too. There's, you know, recently all of the uh, New York Times contributors and writers who signed the letter against the representation of trans folks in in coverage. Employees are not just going to sit there and, you know, listen to it anymore. They're, they're standing up. Absolutely. 
you mentioned leadership a little bit, and we've talked about chief diversity officers a little bit, but there was a recent study that found that chief diversity officers have one of the shortest tenures among all executive roles. Their average is about is a little under two years. Can we talk about why that is and what can be done to address it? That is a, um, a very critical stat um, that, quite frankly, as the years have gone by, especially in the last three years, it has even decreased and that time period has gotten shorter. And that's because literally they are put in roles where they're expected to actually have a crystal ball and a wand to just miraculously fix things. And what I say is that in absence of the organization, really not only setting a commitment, but really having a guidepost to what it wants to change and how it's going to do that um, in an integrated way, whatever person you put in that role is not is not going to succeed. It has to be beyond just the person. The person who comes in that role absolutely has to be skilled, has to be able, experienced, has to understand how to navigate. However, that person must take on the commitment, the ambition, and also the guideposts and objectives that the organizations have set. And what we're seeing, what we've seen with the chief diversity officer role, it literally is expected to have magic solutions and almost, you know, positioned as a scapegoat when things don't um, work or don't stick. But the irony of that is that it's not sticking because the culture has not been created for these efforts to actually not only have the impact, but really have the accountability to really drive change. And so, this is where I think we see it, we're seeing now, we saw, especially, you know, after, you know, a lot of the uh, social justice issues that we have, a lot of the chief diversity officer having a direct line to the CEO um, and really being um, a core part of executive committee team because there was recognition that in order for them to really shape and have the ability to create an empowered workforce and the changes needed, they need to have be empowered. They need to be able to influence the top. They need to be the trusted advisor, the coach, and be able to set the tone across, not just through programmatic things that affect the organization, but also through leadership, through engagement, and through the practices that then are pulled in as the expected processes and efforts that will really drive sustainable change. You said uh, that they can often be seen as a scapegoat. And I'm wondering, is it that a lot of companies were like, we have a problem with diversity, we'll hire a chief diversity officer, and then that person will fix everything. Oh, wait, everything didn't get fixed. It's their problem. They didn't do it. Yes. And that's the go back, goes back to the accountability part, right? What we talked about earlier. And if that accountability is not only set along with a commitment before any person enters the role, that person will not be set up for success. Well, and it's a matter of resources too, right? Are a lot of companies hiring these chief diversity officers, but then not giving them any sort of staffs, any sort of like ways to get the the work done is just like, here, you fix our diversity problem. Yes, exactly. And, you know, with the resources, I think that in certain organizations, it really depends on the company, that a person can do it if they are empowered to work unilaterally across the organizations, right? Across, you know, public affairs, HR, the CSR. If they are truly empowered and they have collaborative partners, I do think that you can do it. However, also, they not only need to have the resources, but they need to have the influence and ability to affect change. So if you are putting a person in a role and not giving them 
the ability to influence and make decisions that affect the employees, workplace conditions, the culture, and what leaders are expected to do and how they're measured, then it's for not, right? So I would say resources and also the ability to influence and impact. Yeah. You wrote recently about the impact of Florida governor's uh, proposed ban on DE&I programs at Florida State Universities, and clearly that's a horrible and discriminatory idea, but especially with the challenges to affirmative action that are coming, uh, where do you see DE&I in higher education going, and what will the impacts of that be as far as the future of the workforce? Yeah, that is um, a very daunting outlook, but one, do I, I do have some optimism where I think that the the impact because it's being raised at such a high level, I think we are also seeing equally the opposition to that, saying that we have to and we will make sure that diversity, equity, inclusion, and an accurate historical depiction of our country's history needs and must be and will be centered in the academia. And I think that that's important because what we're seeing is in absence of that, you are not able to really have an ability to really set an understanding and show how the actions, the activism, the rights, and the evolution of our culture that affects everyone, not just people of color, not just people who are in marginalized communities, everyone for the good. So we see the impact of civil rights that has had on you know the LGBT journey. We have seen that how it's had on people with disabilities. I mean, these things are not happening in isolation of each other. And that's why we have equally, you know, despite what's happening in Florida, we are still seeing, you know, that being challenged and actually being centered because we know that if we don't talk about and understand our history, not only are we doomed to repeat it, we will regress on all of the social advances. And, and equitable practices that we have seen that has really made our country not only flourish, but be a powerhouse by having the ability to leverage the wonderful experience and diversity and, and perspectives of our country. Despite these challenges in Florida and, and in general of teaching these issues in school, that it's going to happen despite that, that educators and students are, are kind of rallying for this anyways? Yeah, I think what we're not only seeing is educators and students, but you're you're seeing also um, parents, community organizers, school boards that are trying to shape and and really have the alternative. And what I think that we'll see more of is like community organizations taking that charge, using, you know, opportunities like, you know, public library sessions, community organizations through Heritage Month, like Black History Month, like Women's Pride Month, to really have a voice and go from being, you know, just activity driven to really talking about the experiences of these communities and how it shaped the world that we live in today. And you're seeing kind of evidence of that. One of the things I posted today was on the Crown Act. You know, the Crown Act is the legislation around race-based hair discrimination that has been passed in 20 states. And now what that has done, that's being led, uh, wonderful, being led by, you know, Dove that actually went to the, the, the states and organizations to support it. But it's talking, it's allowing people to tell stories in a way that actually shapes their experience and know how that led to inequitable treatment, has led to being, not having opportunities, being not included, having discrimination against them. And I, we will absolutely see more of this that hopefully will change and shift into legislative 
results that the states can really then become more empowered and have the ability to fight against these um, unfortunate efforts to, to minimize and not focus on DEI. I love that you're such an optimist because it is easy to feel discouraged when horrible proposals come up like this. And they do feel there's been so much, you know, for example, so much anti-LGBTQ legislation in the last several years. I think you're right that there's, you know, whenever there is these things, there is so many people empowered to work around it, to figure out a solution. It raises the issue and gives it even more attention and and hopefully then pushes through more change. Yeah. And, and actually it forces, I think, you know, our community and those, you know, in our society like myself who are passionate about change to really look for alternative ways to ensure that it stays not only top of mind, but an active pursuit of justice and equality. You know, this is where we we saw this in actually in the Marriage Equality Act and, and the advocates briefs. When that happened, you know, what was that like eight years ago? And that's when corporate organizations actually shifted from being a federal legislation to now corporate organizations saying, we're not supporting this because we value all of our employees and the LGBT will have this experience. And I do think that it challenges us to think about how do we affect societal change in ways that will not allow, right, <laughs> you know, small microcosms of society <laughs> like, you know, uh, Florida to really take place and that, you know, we will persevere and really pull for social justice. On the marriage equality, um, I always think uh, about when we covered, um, we did a package uh, several years ago called Out at Work, and it was, you know, stories of of people grappling with coming out or not coming out at, at work. And as part of that, we we talked about how sometimes businesses can actually help lead that social change, that businesses, private businesses were adding domestic partner benefits long before marriage equality became... Absolutely. And that goes back to exactly what we were talking about when it's like, this is what employees want. This is how you recruit and retain. We saw evidence of that with Roe v. Wade as well, right? When you are literally, you have legislation coming down that will disproportionately affect, you know, one particular gender in your in your workforce. And so you had, in the same vein, you know, organizations like shift their benefits and their policies to making sure that women have fair and equitable access to the health care that they needed. I know it's kind of tricky predicting the future, but just to end, I'd be interested to hear your kind of what's the best case scenario for the future of DE&I work and what's your worst case scenario? Like what is the, you know, mistakes that companies could make in this moment and set us back? And what is the right moves that companies could make and, and continue us forward? That's a great question. So I just want to also preface this. I'm optimistic because I have to be, right? Because there's work out there that has to be done and you have to have that internal motivation and drive to know that change is on the horizon and really stay the course. And I think for organizations, you know, the worst case scenario is there's a regression to looking at diversity, equity, inclusion as just a moment in time, as just a Black History Month celebration, as just a Women's History Month, and really undervaluing and not tap into the richness the beauty and how having diversity in a flourishing community and organization that empowers employees to not only be their authentic selves, but to lead in that way, to really drive um, creativity and innovation, to minimize, you know, the group think that they focus on the dividends and the assets of diversity rather than being initiative, temporary in time and metrics driven. 
I do think on the positive, what we're seeing is what I shared about earlier, that organizations are now understanding that being reactive and really having a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of the things that are going on in our world with social issues, with global issues, that they're taking a perspective of being thoughtful and really kind of sitting and doing some introspection on what are our values, what does our mission and vision look like, and how does that meet our commitment to our society? And you're seeing more of that in this, you know, collective and integrated um, ESG approach. So that also is the positive outlook that I see. Great. Well, Wima, thank you so much for joining me. This is such an interesting and energizing conversation. Well, thank you, Kate. And thank you for all that you're doing. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Mm-hmm.